Hi, I'm Tristan Miller, and this is Positive and Negative, a podcast about the intersectionality between mental health and the arts. In this episode, I speak with actor, comedian, writer, and musician Rivka Riaz about their experience with bipolar disorder and addiction. This is Rivka on managing mental health. Keep it simple is another thing that I would say. Like, you know, people, neurodivergent people and people who uh, live with addiction and alcoholism and, and all of that fun, 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 fun stuff, we're complicated thinkers. We overcomplicate, we overthink, we overdo, we overanalyze. Keep it simple. What are the facts? Spoiler alert, it's probably not your feelings, but your feelings are highly valid. It's just that they can't always be tr- trusted if you have a squiggly brain. This podcast is made possible by my Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash Tristan J. Miller for a lot of different kinds of content, but also early releases of uncut episodes of this podcast. You can also check out my tour dates at tristanjmiller.com slash manicimpressive. I hope you enjoy listening to Rivka as much as I enjoyed speaking with them. Were you born in Chicago? I know you were there for a little bit. Yeah, I was born and raised in Chicago. Um, I very much consider Chicago to be my hometown and not my home. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I (laughs) was, yeah, born and raised in Chicago, um, went and worked in New York when I was a kid and then came back to Chicago, stayed in Chicago until I was 25, until 2017, um, and moved out to LA for work. And then I would always kind of like go back to Chicago after gigs. So I would like go do a show in L.A. and come back to Chicago. Or I'd go do a show in New York and then come back to Chicago, Indiana randomly, New Orleans, come back to Chicago. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in uh, the (laughs) Utah shoot, which was very, it was, yeah, it was my first time at being in Utah for longer than a layover. And it was was really, it was interesting. I imagine. And do you consider yourself a Midwesterner still, though? Do you have that sensibility? Yes, I do. I think I do. I, I well, I feel like Chicago. I always am like, well, it's Chicago. It's different. But then I'm like constantly apologizing for my existence. Anytime I go to a restaurant, yeah. it's like I am. I am sorry that I'm there. Um, sorry for breathing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, and then you know the. I feel like Chicago city kids Mm. like myself, like we do have a bit of an edge, um, that is different. Um, especially if you went to public school in Chicago, like you're kind of more scrappy. Um, but I mean, the Midwest is the Midwest. Yeah. So when, when did you start doing stand up? I I was going through your like website and I was like, Oh really? That's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I started when I had just finished college and I don't say graduated because I did not graduate. Um, I kind of just like finished my theater credits and was like, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. I mean, I spent four yeah. years here, so technically I graduated by proxy. I did get to walk at the graduation ceremony. I just never finished my mm-hmm. gen eds, but I started right out of college and, um, I started doing these like. I mean, I was my background in comedy started in improv and sketch at Second mm-hmm. City. 
Um, I had done their musical improv conservatory, which spawned this um, collective called Mint, which stood for Music Improv Night. Uh, And we would do these weekly shows where it was four musical improv teams with four different coaches and four different musical directors. And we would each get like a 15 minute set. It was a very drunk, debaucherous (laughs) thing. And, um, you know, I was doing a lot of musical improv and then musical sketch uh, as well. I was in a musical sketch group called Cupid Has a Heart On, (laughs) RIP. That that group was so toxic. And its director itself, uh, yeah, yeah. It was a a rough, a very dark time. And when I was experiencing, um, like, what was the beginning of, I think, my, like, emotional and, like, physical rock bottom, Mm. like, (laughs) with alcohol and drugs, um, and was being kind of known as this, like, drunk nightmare slut like in the Chicago improv and sketch scene and like not really being welcomed yeah. to like play with certain people I was like well fine I'll do stand up because everyone's a drunk slut That's in stand up as a comedian I can confirm so I felt more welcomed yeah. there because I was just like well first of all these people are going to help enable me mm-hmm. to continue to act the way I am because I'm very comfortable with the way I am in that moment um didn't realize I was like completely bottoming out and just causing terror to everyone around me. Um, and I started doing stand up and musical comedy, um, kind of in the same vein as, um, you know, Garfunkel, Garfunkel mm-hmm. and Oates, Bo Burnham and stuff. I would always bring in my guitar to sets and um, do these quick little, you know, two songs or three song stand up mm-hmm. sets um, with like bits in between. Um, and so. Yeah, I really actually did feel like I found my comedic voice most through stand-up. Like, um, especially in Chicago, there's, like, this we- like this very broad um, and, and beautiful uh, alt-comedy scene where it's, like, people who do PowerPoints, yeah. people who do uh, variety acts, like, people who do you know, musical comedy, people who do, like, character, like, Megan Stalter and Caleb Kieran and, you know, all of the greats that, you know, now are out here Mm -hmm. and and over there in New York, too. Like, you know, they're they're all more, like, from the alt-comedy scene, and I felt really welcomed into that as, like, a musical comedian because, like, I know in L.A., like, there's there's a place for musical comedy, and it's not most places in L.A., (laughs) (laughs) when did you start playing music was that always there yeah it was always there um it was kind of predetermined by my parents (laughs) that I would be a musician like my mom and dad enrolled me in music lessons when I was two oh wow yeah yeah so I've been at it almost for three decades it's crazy to think about they yeah I started playing classical guitar when I was four and singing I picked that up while I was uh, on set on my first gig which was famously School of mm-hmm. Rock um, I said that and I rolled my yeah. eyes I don't mean it I don't mean it when I roll my yeah. eyes I just got out of a relationship with somebody who critiqued me on the fact that I roll my eyes a lot uh-huh. and I was just like I promise you it's like not personal I, I think <laughs> it's just like a thing that I always do yeah it's to, it's to downplay it because it's a well known thing right yeah yeah. yeah, and I get it. Definitely you, to downplay it. Yeah, I understand. But so you started singing there then on set, and you hadn't t- like taken lessons before. I hadn't taken lessons. I didn't like sing really in the movie. Um, hmm. But we would do between like 
uh, takes or like between like during lunch, we would have little karaoke parties or it was so, yeah, we play DDR and, and do little karaoke parties. Um, we would also like, um, we had like a big karaoke party with all the cast and crew for, um, like, I think it was like when we started shooting, Mm. we had like a month and a half of rehearsal before and table reads and stuff. And then we started shooting, Uh and I think that, like, first weekend of shooting, we had a big karaoke party. And then to wrap, we also had a karaoke party. And I became super invested in musical theater because we were shooting out in New York. Mm -hmm. And we would, like, on our nights off, we would go see Broadway shows. Like, we saw Lion King. We saw Aida. um, We saw the producers, a couple others, and... And I just became so infatuated with Broadway and also the movie Chicago came out and I was like, what? Like, (laughs) oh my God, I have arrived and this is what I want to do. And, you know, just uh, also the other thing was that all of the kids, we all had very differing tastes in music that all kind of just were like, blended together and we would like go to like tower records on the weekends or what our coconut coconuts or whatever and like pick up you know uh cds and stuff and and bring them to set the next day and be like oh my god i got this from the store oh like goodness. you should listen to this like this is have you heard of this avril lavigne like we we were obsessed with the girls were all obsessed with avril lavigne <laughs> of course um the boys, uh, Kevin, who played Freddie Jones in the movie, he introduced me to pop punk, like with Green Day, mm-hmm. Blink-182, and also like punk punk, like Minor Threat, Black Flag and stuff. And I was just like, wow, like, you know, this this has just expanded my taste in music. Because I had really only known classical and then classic rock, um, like Beatles, Rolling Stones. And then my dad also had this um, uh, Motown, like, soul collection that he would play. And then I think aside from that, I knew a couple of like movie musicals, like Sound of Music in Greece. Um, but like I had a pretty vast music taste as a kid and it became even more vast when we all kind of showed each other what we were into. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and also I would, my little, it's so funny thinking about this now, I've always been a little bit spiritual. Even I, I grew up, in the Catholic church and also with a Jewish dad, but like I've always had rituals. Um, and when I was a kid, like when, especially when I was on set and we were like living in this hotel, um, my morning ritual was I would wake up and I'd put on MTV or VH1 and watch like the music videos and just study Mm -hmm. essentially. And also like, I feel like I connect to my guides like through music the most. Um, and I just remember having my like first like, big telltale like queer awakening seeing the tattoo music video the all the things she said uh you know that song right all the things she said all the things she said running through my head as the girls making out (laughs) that was like my oh my god wait what yeah Uh, (laughs) sure (laughs) and then like shortly after the the britney madonna moment Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) and i was just like oh okay yeah yeah. um i think like more than like watching britney and madonna kiss it was seeing how mad justin timberlake was (laughs) that was the queer awakening for me because i was just like i kind of know that's camp i don't know what camp is yet but i kind of know that's camp (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so when you say you've always been spiritual what do you mean by that i've always had these little rituals. Yeah. I feel like, 
you know, religion is very rigid and, and solid and spirituality is very fluid yeah. and roomy and broad. And you can really, you know, if you, if you wake up at the same time and like pour yourself a glass of water and like think about the 24 hours ahead at the same time every day, that is like a spiritual routine for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, if that's, you know, if you're going into it with that intention. And I always found that like, especially when I was first immersed in classical guitar, um, it was this thing that I would go to to feel good mm -hmm. um, and feel this sense of like peace and ease which is like what I do now with like meditation or breath work or yoga or whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, tarot cards and yeah. all of that. Um, and while I was never really down with like the religious aspect of my, you know, upbringing, um, I understood kind of like, oh, these people are coming here to get this solution to whatever it is they're going through. I think I just kind of have always been a little bit claircognizant and like just knowing shit mm -hmm. like and highly sensitive highly intuitive kid um like could never explain this but i would always know when something was going to like go wrong mm -hmm. um and that was like <laughs> diagnosed as anxiety yeah. but i was just like no i think that's just like intuition <laughs> and a fine line. there's a very fine line right i recently heard somebody say that ADHD is uh, intuition overload. Ooh, and I was just I like, like whoa, I really like that. That feels very, very uh, relatable. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but I always had this sense of um, <laughs> like believing in magic, believing in miracles and believing in um, like trusting my gut. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And you've already kind of started to touch on it, but do you ever get concerned that those feelings aren't necessarily like true because of the mental health disorder situation? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, as like a, you know, <laughs> uh, bipolar, anxious, depressed, like neurodivergent alcoholic mm -hmm. <laughs> in recovery, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of my thoughts are not coming from the universe. Like a lot of those are coming from self-will, selfishness, mm -hmm. dishonesty, and self-pity. Um, so now that, you know, I've, I've known my diagnoses like for coming up on four years and like now that I've been actively working on my mental health and my sobriety for nearly four years, I feel like it, it becomes this like working part of my mind, but yeah. it wasn't always that easy. Like now, now I can definitely suss out like whether something is like a Rivka, like crazy thought, not, not, not crazy, but like, you know, like an un, <laughs> an un, um, an unwell, uh, an unwell thought, yeah. a sick thought mm -hmm. or like an, uh, ill motived thought mm. uh, or ill intended, whether it is, yes, there you go. Or like, if this is actually coming from a place of like honesty, purity and love, mm -hmm. like, and trust and faith and all of those fun, you know, spiritual qualities that we, that I hope to be. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, humility. That's the one I always forget. Um, <laughs> oh, that's phenomenal. Oh, you couldn't have written a better setup. And what are the practices that have allowed you to like, 
feel that sense of clarity now, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah. Um, well, I'm a big fan of uh, meditation and prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a lot of people balk at the idea of prayer. Um, I'm not like physically yeah. getting down on my knees or anything like that. Like sometimes I do if I'm desperate as fuck, but like... <laughs> Literally, like, I will be, um, I do skincare. I'm, like, very, very into my whole 12-step skincare routine. Um, I, like, as I am putting the cleanser on my face, I'm, you know, breathing in light and exhaling. You're cleansing your soul, too. does not serve me. Cleansing my skin, cleansing my soul, right? Mm -hmm. Letting the outside lead or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and though I, I'm completely aware that like skincare and Botox and all that stuff, like that doesn't fix the inside problem, can't fix an inside pro- problem with an outside solution. Yeah. But like, there are some things that just make me feel good. Yeah. I, I, you know, there, there are these acts of like protection from myself, essentially, like skincare, like going for a run or, well, let me get right size, going for a walk <laughs> uphill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I live in a neighborhood with a lot of hills and like secret staircases and stuff. And, you know, I know that I feel a lot better in my day and feel like less prone to taking things personally to, um, being selfish and self-seeking if I do take those daily actions or those little rituals, like I said, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't like necessarily spring for music videos first thing in the morning anymore like I did when I was little or nor do I like pick up my guitar that was the other thing like you know I would pick up my guitar to practice every morning like right when I woke up before school after school I would play a little bit and then right before bed I would play a song or two that was my little thing Mm -hmm. three times a day and now I have this morning routine this midday check-in and this nighttime routine Mm -hmm. um, that are crucial and they change at least once a week like oh. I change it up because I'm I move very quickly in human in human design I'm a manifesting generator which means like rituals have to be changing mm-hmm. and like evolving as I change and evolve yeah. um, because I get bored super quickly <laughs> with yes. certain rituals yeah so yeah with my my like prayer and meditation routine like it doesn't always look like me sitting in silence for twenty minutes um, sometimes it's like I'll wake up and I'll like journal for you know three pages artist way style like morning pages um stream of consciousness or i'll write a little to-do list or i'll pull a tarot card and look at it and reflect on okay what does this card make me feel what is my gut reaction to this card how am i going to embody the the two of wands for the day Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. you know um and then like or writing down like any of the dreams that i had that i can remember and then midday checking in to see if any of the little symbols or motifs in my dreams came true or came up in xyz at work or in a conversation with you know a friend or a crush or whatever um and then at night before i go to bed i do this um pretty much every night i kind of check in and ask myself okay where did i self-sabotage today (laughs) let's be real let's be honest like where how much time did i spend thinking about money um in an unhealthy toxic way today Mm -hmm. how much time and energy did i burn up checking the instagram likes today Mm -hmm. you know and just giving myself that little like inventory at the end of the day just to really be like okay what can we work on tomorrow 
mm-hmm. without being super fucking hard on myself. Oh, did I forget to eat today? Like, let's not do that tomorrow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which came first, the sobriety or the diagnosis? Um, well, <laughs> it's complicated. I okay. consider sobriety to be like, you're, you don't drink, you don't do drugs, mm-hmm. you don't use weed. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, you, if you are on any sort of medication, it's prescribed to you by a medical professional. Yeah. Um, I didn't have that until January of uh, 2019 because I was still on the like uh, marijuana maintenance regimen sure, where sure. I wasn't drinking, I wasn't doing coke, I wasn't stealing people's Xanax except for once um, in the first year that I wasn't drinking and doing coke. Um, but I was still like using weed alcoholically. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I, I took my first honest stab at like complete and utter abstinence from alcohol and coke uh, which are my main, like, drugs of choice, um, in December of 2017, like, shortly after I moved to L.A., um, hearing this girl in the makeup chair say, oh, yeah, I don't really drink because it shows up on camera, and then me being like, I have to stop drinking. Uh, <laughs> it was vanity. <laughs> yeah, yes, vanity, you know, that's why, why, why do you think I forgot humility? Yeah, is. yeah. <laughs> um, it's always humility is the first thing to go out the door, and then honesty second. Um, uh-huh. But, like... I took my first honest stab at that in December of 2017. I didn't, do, I didn't, I haven't picked up a drink since uh, December 10th of 2017, and I haven't done coke since then either. And like the first 90 days of my sobriety, I was a complete and utter fucking nightmare. Yeah. Of course, because I was in withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, from like <laughs> alcohol, cocaine, and benzos, like Ooh. which is <laughs> yeah. insane to put yourself through that. Um, I was also a huge clonopin addict when I was in college. Like, um, meant, I manipulated my doctor into prescribing it to me for my anxiety, mm-hmm. which was like, yes, I knew I was ang- like struggling with anxiety and like trigger warning suicidal ideation and stuff. But like, um, I knew that clonopin was gonna be like was gonna put me the fuck out, and that's what I wanted. So mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and like going to like my PCP versus going to a fucking psychiatrist for that is highly manipulative. Yeah. Um, yeah. Calling myself out. See, honesty. Um, <laughs> but no, I was uh, in withdrawal and I was going through a bit of like an identity, like existential crisis with like my dating situations. Um, I had been like actively participating in sex work in sex work which I don't think objectionably is bad but for me it did not like it did it wasn't good um none of it was ever from a place of like empowerment it was all just from a place of desperation and needing money to like mm-hmm. buy either drugs or afford my apartment in LA mm-hmm. and I was spiraling out so hard that I had started having panic attacks every day and wasn't knew that I couldn't go back on Klonopin because I was actively trying to be sober and went to the um, hospital to Cedars sinai and was just like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, and they brought in like a psychiatrist to give me an evaluation and they brought in a social worker and um, they went into (laughs) the other room after like talking to me for a bit 
And um, I got this email from my agent saying that I had booked something. Mm-hmm. And I started crying tears of joy <laughs> and like was just like, this is amazing. All my problems are fixed. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel fucking great. And then comically like brilliant, the, the social worker and the psychiatrist come back in and they're like, we think you like are possibly bipolar. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, crying tears of joy i'm like that makes sense like (laughs) um but yeah so then after shortly after that came the honest try Mm -hmm. and like starting to seek spiritual help for the spiritual problem that was my drug addiction and alcoholism Mm -hmm. um where before it was just like dry drunk, which is basically for the listeners who don't maybe know what that means is like you're not actively drinking or using drugs but you're still acting like a fucking crazy alcoholic yeah um you know just because the physical thing is removed doesn't mean you're like in action that like is supporting your recovery yeah sometimes you Um, can just have a bad personality despite not being drunk you know for a little bit yeah Ooh, (laughs) i I relate yeah i relate to that sometimes i'm still like uh do i just have like a medically bad personality yeah you know (laughs) So it was a combination, though, of both of those things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my, uh, a lot of things were going down around that time. Yeah. Uh, between like December twenty seventh. I mean, well, honestly, February twenty seventeen. Um, I hit like what I consider to be like the the big big physical rock bottom, yeah. where like you know, trigger warning. Uh, I was like assaulted while blacked out, and oh I was gosh. just like. Yeah, I was just like, I I have a drinking problem. Like, clearly, like, yes, fuck the person that did that to me. And, like, that I don't have a part in that. Like, that's the, not something that I did to myself. Yeah. Like, and, but it absolutely could have been avoided. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know for myself that that situation could have been avoided. Still fuck that person, and still that person is very sick. But, like... You know, I knew that something wasn't right with the way that I drunk and the way that I used drugs. So I talked to a friend who I knew was sober and was like, I really want to get sober. Uh, they were like, okay, then don't drink tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, okay, I won't. And I didn't drink. And I didn't drink for maybe a week after that incident happened. And then something fucking triggered me and I drank again. Mm-hmm. You know, and I started to see the bargaining that I do, like, you know, the ways that I try to control my drinking and using. I started keeping a spreadsheet of, like, how many times a week I would black out, um, which was a lot. Uh, (laughs) um, And then I would only do, um, I worked at a brewery at the time because, of course, I did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I used the, like, guise of, I just really like craft beer. I'm really interested in the whole process of how it's it's made and da-da-da. But I was was definitely, like, (laughs) you know, free beer all the time, flowing by the the pound. Um, And I, instead of getting, like, a full-size pint after my shift, I would just do little shot-sized amounts of beer. But then I would, like, drink 12 of those rather than one or none, which is what was, you know, there's a saying, like, you know, a thousand is not enough and one is too many. Yeah. For me, like, Mm -hmm. that, that is definitely how my drinking and drug use is. And, like, from, like, that point from February 2017 when the incident happened to when I did, you know, have my last drink... 
there was just a lot of experimentation yeah and a lot of bad shit happened a lot of like you know me going through toxic narcissistic abuse in relationships a lot of me cheating or being cheated on spiraling you know really falling apart and then this gig that brought me out to LA kind of saved my life because I met so many sober people in my first two months living in LA that I was just like, wow, fucking everybody here is sober. I guess I should be too mm-hmm. because A, it shows up on camera and B, I don't want to like be coming into auditions like this. Like, yeah. and I don't want to be coming onto set or into production hungover anymore. I just can't. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired <laughs> and I just, you know, had my last drink and then, you know, for the three months of so dryity where I was like not drinking, not using um, the harder stuff, um, I was still in these toxic relationships. I was still um, behaving so selfishly. I was still, you know, now that the alcohol and the drugs were gone, I was like using anything else I could, like sex or, or food or lack thereof or you know, um, shopping, whatever, to numb out and to fill that, like, giant void that I felt in my soul. Um, And then I just knew that, like, it was more of a spiritual thing than anything, and I needed to seek spiritual help for the spiritual problem. Okay. That's interesting. I think that's a very unique perspective on it because so often... Addiction is treated as a disease these days, which is effective. But mm-hmm. I think it's really wonderful that you were able to recognize the other aspect of it, which is, for you, spiritual. And I I think, yeah. you know, I have a bit of that, too. And I think that that's a component of it in as much as, like, you can't separate a person's brain from their mind and their soul. You know, and it's all one chain. So Oh, it is. It is a big, you know... Uh, they say that alcoholism and addiction is a three-part disease. It's a it's a physical mm-hmm. thing. It's also a mental thing, and it's also a spiritual thing. Yeah. Like you know, and and like you know, some some even say that it's a physical allergy to alcohol. Yeah. yeah and like I do. I mean, my allergic reaction to alcohol and drugs is that I fucking go berserk on everybody, and I cannot keep it down. I mm-hmm. just can't. I just can't handle my shit when I'm drunk. And, like, I, my dad always, you know, my dad's also, you know, dabbled in and out of sobriety for many years. And, like, his joke is, like, yeah, I'm allergic to tequila because every time I drink it, I break out in handcuffs. And I'm, like, ah, ha, ha, okay. I'm fucking yucka, yucka. Yes. Um, we love the dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> How did all this start for you? It was early, right? That all the the, the mental health stuff, yeah, the, the drugs, the drugs, the mental health stuff, and was the mental health stuff like apparent as a child as well? Do you think? Yes, uh, I was highly obsessive mm-hmm. as a kid. Um, my whole family has addictive personalities. Like you know, there's there's lots of drug addicts on you know both sides. There's lots of mental health stuff on both sides. A lot of untreated and unaddressed mental health stuff on my mom's side. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, for a lot of POC, like, yeah. it, it, there's a lot of just unaddressed mental illness because either doctors are minimizing the pain or the family is, like, 
you know, you're, you're not depressed. Go, you know, go do your homework or go take a walk. You'll feel better. Go splash water on your face. You'll feel better. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, mental health and mental illness stuff was always a big hush-hush thing in my family. It was like my auntie uh, has schizophrenia and Goodness. they... Yeah, and, and, you know, she's treated for it, and she's she's on medication for it, but there was an incident, you know, where she tried to uh, kill herself when I was a kid, and uh, it was this big family secret. Nobody could talk about my auntie. Like, mm-hmm. it, you know, almost was as if she didn't exist. Mm. Like, uh, is how it was treated, and, and, you know, my dad's brother, Major Junkie, like, you know, and... and you know, his his tactic was to, like, use that to scare us out of doing drugs. Oh. And, like, it worked for a while, but, like, I still, I mean, obviously look where I am. Yeah. Like, I ended up still doing a lot of drugs. Um, it started, the, well, the alcohol, I mean, my first drink was when I was 11. I mm-hmm. was at the Toronto Film Festival. I had a little, I snuck a little champagne. Mm-hmm. And it, <laughs> I was... I always tell this story, like, in sobriety spaces, like, when I held it in my hand, literally the room around me kind of stopped. And I was just like, this is the elixir of life. Yeah. I had tasted it before on New Year's one year. My, my, you know, I was at, like, a family event function, and, like, I had thought that my little Welch's sparkling cider Mm -hmm. was, like, in front of me, and it was, like, my you know, auntie or uncle, somebody's like backwash uh, champagne <laughs> sure. uh, left over in the flute and I had drank it. I was like, oh, what the fuck? Yeah. Um, but like, that's it. And then knowing like that champagne had been like on TV as this thing that mm-hmm. fancy people drank and like, you know, it was like a wedding or like a special event or a bat mitzvah. Like there's the champagne, you know? Yeah. Um, and I was at a fancy Hollywood, or well, Toronto Film Festival event, and was like, well, I'm a fancy person now, so I get to have this. Yeah. Um, and also, when I picked up the glass, and it was a secret, the room stopped. And I was just like, this is gold. Yeah. This is this elixir that is going to make me cool, that's going to help me to be able to interact with people mm-hmm. um, in a less nervous way. And I, like took it and poured it into a cup uh, that was previously used for Sprite. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was just walking around at the party fucking sipping on my little champagne and, and had this, like, cool little secret. And I felt like it instantly put this, like, filter on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I didn't touch it for a while. Like, I mean, not until I was in high school again, really. Um, and that was when, like, my friends were starting to, like, you know, sneak vodka into Snapple bottles and stuff. And I kind of really wanted to do it just to impress my friends and to be cool. And, um, but, uh, it was really the people, like the, the validation that was more of the drug for me. Um, probably like as early as fourth grade, um, you know, maybe earlier even like, I I think I talk about this a lot in my writing, like, when your parents put so much pressure on you to be a star and tell you that before you were born, they decided that I was going to be a star. They picked my name because it had star quality. They put me in guitar because they they saw the star quality. Granted, I wanted to be a guitarist. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a musician. And then when I, before, 
you know, when I did School of Rock, I wanted to be on camera. Like, I knew that that was a thing for me that I wanted to do. Um, but coming back to school after that, all I wanted was to be liked, and yeah. I was very not. It was either, like, you know... Um, extreme jealousy and like bullying or like can you get me this um you know kind of treatment of Mm -hmm. like oh now that you're rich and famous like can you introduce me to Mm -hmm. jack black Mm -hmm. (laughs) or uh, random like randomly like shia labeouf like (laughs) i'm like i don't even know him like that like (laughs) we we didn't he wasn't in the movie with me shit like but um yeah it, it and that like really messed me up. Um, I let it mess me up. Uh, well past you know adulthood, well into adulthood, I should say. Um, and you know the the drugs and the alcohol was just a symptom. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I was I was gonna ask about that. Is that weird being no because that's a very popular film, mm-hmm. <laughs> specifically of you know, people our age. Was that weird going back to, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but I'd like to hear more about it. And specifically, like, has that, I would imagine that that would harbor a lot of trust issues from people now. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I, I found that at first I trusted people a little, a little bit too easily, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, then I went in the like uh, complete opposite direction. I live in extremes. I'm either like a hundred percent in or a hundred percent out. Um, and like I super trusted people and then they would show them their true colors and I would just withdraw everything and mm-hmm. shut down and become this like, you know, emotional basket case of just no feelings. And like, I definitely would get just, like, knock the fuck out with breakups, like, especially, like, in high school. Um, I would become extremely obsessive over the people that I liked and had crushes on or dated and then would need to t- literally to be home for a day after the inevitable heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and that is, like, a telltale sign of, like, being a love addict, which I am pretty open about, too. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, like coming back to school from School of Rock or if I was like out for a couple weeks on like press or, Mm -hmm. you know, doing the traveling aspect and, you know, premieres and, and, you know, award shows and and festivals and whatever. Um, Coming back was always just like, ugh, back to reality. Sure, sure. Because when I was with the kids from the cast and the people from the movie, it was like, I was with my family. I was with these people that got it, these people that loved me mm-hmm. um, and did accept me as I was. And we like all had this shared, beautiful, beautiful experience being in School of Rock together. And then we'd all go back to our fucking lives. And yep. my life in Chicago wasn't great. Like, <laughs> you know, especially <laughs> when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was always this like brutal like slap in the face of oh yeah you're still just like kind of a nobody and like nobody actually likes you if they Mm -hmm. do it's just because they think you can give them something and um 
everyone else is either jealous of you to a point where they're bullying you or they just don't like you um, <laughs> at all. Sure. Um, yeah, I got bullied a lot. And especially, like, you know, when School of Rock came out, it was kind of when Zanga, uh, if you remember Zanga, and the IMDb messenger boards and stuff, like, people, like, would, you know, comment on, like, my my performance or mm-hmm. you know or creepy guys would say creepy shit yeah. like and it was just a lot of overwhelm uh i really was not prepared i don't think my parents were prepared and there was no like therapist ready to go like because therapy for kids was like only if they had like schizophrenia yeah, yeah. <laughs> or like yeah. um yeah or like you know and my sister was diagnosed with adhd when she was really little and they put her on drugs like which is insane like yeah. i mean i think it's really really hard the way that you know kids who are neurodivergent um get got treated and probably still get treated um and especially ones that are performers or creatives like <sighs> there's a lot to be said for like being a child actor and being in that like high sensation environment Mm-hmm. And, like, being faced with all that pressure and all the, like, you know, energy that comes with being a performer on that level. Um, and there was no, like, counseling in place, mm-hmm. um, really, until I, like, was in high school and needed it badly. And, you know, even that was, like, heavily monitored by my parents. And they were, like, reading my diaries and stuff. Oh and, gosh. like, you know, yeah, finding out about my, like sexual endeavors like and and grounding me and finding out about me drinking and stuff through reading my diaries and and punishing me rather than asking if I was okay yeah um and asking if I needed help um which you know they did the best with what they grew up with um and what tools they had and their tools were very rusty uh so can I ask about the sex work kind of leading from that did you when you were in that position were you worried about your career as a performer as well and your reputation because I would yeah, imagine that's um, hard to balance well um, I was mostly engaged in like virtual stuff Okay, like it was all it was, I knew that I could get people to send me money mm-hmm. to send them content because of who I was, yes. which is like exploiting myself and objectifying myself in a really, really toxic way mm-hmm. um, out of desperation. And I started doing it because I wanted drugs and money to, you know, do the drugs. Um, and then I would also like, you know, be on like sugar daddy websites and stuff and, and being more anonymous there. And Mm -hmm. I never like had a situation where somebody recognized me, thank God. Um, but I still to this day, like occasionally will have content leaked. Um, and you know, luckily my, my, uh, Google alerts are on and my, you know, I have people on Twitter who will, like, they're well-intentioned, but they'll send me, like, hey, just so you know, like, this picture of you got leaked. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, 
don't tell me, just record it whenever you see that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, and if you're, you know, listening and <laughs> you ever do see a picture of me, just know that it wasn't consented, that it was leaked. Like, yeah. that was, you know, that is, like, technically illegal. Um, but, mm-hmm. again, my part in it is, like, I <laughs> willingly gave that away so that I could get my needs met for mm-hmm. drugs. And that is, like, I was so willing to do anything to get high, including put my career at risk yeah including you know and i think it kind of sucks that like doing sex work puts your career at risk as a performer like that's like not cool um and i have a lot of friends who are you know in that industry and who are like yeah always living in that fear Mm -hmm. um but i think there can exist a world in which like sex work isn't this big stigmatized thing um i just know for myself it was not the move and it will never be the move yes um you know i even even in the last you know half year i was doing i had patreon um and as an offering for like the higher paying tiers i like had like not nudes not like porn or anything like that but like spicier pictures on there that like were protected by a paywall that eventually of course got leaked once i took them off of patreon when i decided that that was still a dishonest way of putting my work out there and that i could you know uh gain financial abundance in healthier ways for me that don't involve objectifying myself um and yeah like but I, I was definitely capitalizing on the fact that I was this like you know adored a child star and a lot of people like you know knowing the way that men interacted with me on the like you know IMDB message boards when I was mm-hmm. fucking 10 mm-hmm. I was just like oh sure like people will definitely buy videos and pictures of xyz like you know for and and i did like i i did thrive on that for a little while but it's like i think of it as like you know using gas like you know is that clean gas is that gonna like keep your car engine healthy yeah or like are you gonna be able to get from point a to point b sure um is it a sustainable way of getting from point a to point b is it a healthy and mm-hmm. like environmentally friendly way of getting from point A to point B, like probably not. And like what I'm going for now is like most sustainable, most healthy way to yeah. get from point A to point B. That's great. I'm I'm glad that you were able to navigate that and realize that it's not a good fit for you. Oh no! I like only recently started talking about this too. Yeah. Like I'm still I'm still like shaking right now talking about it, knowing oh. that there's going to be some negative Nancy out there or some like puritanical Paul out there who (laughs) like you know doesn't like fuck with that and like will probably pass judgment but at the end of the day luckily due to my work on myself I'm able to be in this position of neutrality around what people think of me yeah um you know well then I'll say this thank you very much for sharing that I appreciate your openness that means a lot of course the thing is also that I've learned me speaking publicly about it and using my platform to shed light on it, hopefully, my hope is that somebody is like, oh shit, me too. Mm -hmm. And if like I can survive this, like so can anyone else. Yeah. If they're willing to fucking work on themselves and and be radically um, honest and accepting of the past you know, right? We talked about like how much time and energy do I want to spend 
like digging a hole of like I hate the things that I did in the past and resenting myself for the actions that I took when it got me here and I'm absolutely like thriving and loving my life um, now Um, but you know I think seeing my personal like recovery and mental health heroes um, share publicly about their shit really Mm -hmm. helps me not feel as alone and seeing representation for folks who are neurodivergent or you know struggle with addiction or have struggled with addiction like who are fucking surviving and thriving and killing it now Mm -hmm. like yeah I probably wouldn't have gotten clean or sober if I hadn't seen accurate you know beautiful like empowered reality and representation of that on my tv screen or my instagram or whatever so here I am beautifully said now when you were crying because you got an acting gig and they said you're probably bipolar you said oh that makes sense did you feel a sense of relief with that definitely I I needed a diagnosis um I think that you know I maybe if I hadn't been in that place that I was at that low point, I would have seen it as a death sentence. Yeah. But also I have a lot of friends who are bipolar and who are in treatment or, you know, taking actions towards like that level of neutrality that I feel like I as a bipolar person want to have and be in um, where the high highs aren't as high and the low lows aren't as low. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, I think having that diagnosis and having that thing to label it as really helped and and there are times where I um like I had a a recovery person who was not a psychiatrist say no you're not bipolar you just have a spiritual malady and I'm Mm. like well hold on for a second there I I do I was diagnosed by a medical professional (laughs) and we're not to uh take that lightly uh or uh you know belittle or patronize that but um yeah yeah I I definitely feel like having that like label you know, in place, help me more with like, okay, what action do I have to take to um, get better? Yeah. Not necessarily to feel better, but to get better, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was, I was put on, um, well, they were like, we won't be able to like really know like what medication you need unless you're like fully sober sober. Yeah. And I got fully sober sober from everything, everything. And like after, you know, a couple months of that, um, I was put on, you know, a Lamictal and was on that for like a year. And then I honestly felt like it was numbing me out from being able to express like emotions as an actor. Mm. So I'm currently not medicating the bipolar. Uh. Um, I medicate my anxiety and I medicate my um, ADD. Uh-huh. But um, for the bipolar, um, I, I'm not taking any like mood stabilizers. Sure. Um, but... No, I am prescribed a, a stimulant for my ADD, <laughs> which I am under like very uh, monitored uh, uh, care from my psychiatrist and from my like recovery people. Yeah. Um, and then for the anxiety, I have like an as needed thing that is like for if I have a panic attack, you know. Yeah, but that's interesting about the stimulant because that often can trigger a manic episode. And how yeah. do you go about balancing that? You said you're under like observation but like how do you have you gotten a sense of like oh this is how I feel when I'm about to go zoom (laughs) 
Yeah, I do. I have a very, um, well, yes and no. I mean, right, with mania, uh, sometimes it's triggered by caffeine. Other times it's triggered by a life event. Um, And, you know, I, I sometimes can, you know, afford to live in the gray area of like, you know, oh, is this about to be, am I about to go into, okay, am I going to have to, like, be vegan and caffeine-free this, this month? Okay. Sure. And, and I think it is just, like, an honest, open conversation between myself, my psychiatrist, and then myself and my higher power, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> where I have to, like, be constantly, like, checking in and seeing where I'm at, like, physically, mentally, and spiritually, um, which I, I do have, you know, a very good grasp on that like I, I can definitely tell you like and and then tell my my therapist my psychiatrist my spiritual advisors like where I am mentally physically and spiritually um you know most days because I'm constantly taking that mental inventory mm-hmm. or that stock of my emotions my feelings my fears my you know triggers my everything um and I think it is just that that constant self check in, um, which I know is easier said than done. Yeah. Um, but this is like four years in the making. Like I've, I've I will never be recovered from alcoholism. I will never be recovered from having been diagnosed bipolar. Like, but I will always be actively taking measures, both you know, uh, spiritual and medical and mental and physical and psychological measures like to push myself closer to that state of neutrality and Mm -hmm. that state of serenity Mm -hmm. you're pretty open about not being straight when famously i'm gay yeah it's like notable queer person but when did it really sink in and specifically in terms of gender when did you click into place gender wise it's still a thing it's still like a work in progress like i i oscillate between being like i am they them only or being like today where i'm like they she like any mistakes made without malice like i'm good yeah and and i feel very secure right now in my um gender identity uh I identify as gender fluid, non-binary. Mm-hmm. Um, I also still identify as a woman, though. So, like, there's, there's, you know, it's, it's broad, it's roomy, it's inclusive. Um, yeah, I'm, you know, not in a place where I want to say physically transition or anything like that. Yeah. But I'm not closed off to it. If mm-hmm. one day I wake up and I'm like, no, I think I do want to go on T or I do want to get top surgery, like. That's an outcome that I am not, you know, shut off to. Mm-hmm. Um, I can earnestly, earnestly say I don't see that for me, mm-hmm. like, in this moment. But, again, I can't be really thinking past the 24 hours that are ahead of me. And, like, no, I started, I, I, I feel like the first time I questioned my own gender or lack thereof, um, was when I met a person who was non-binary for the first time and, like, was in, like, shared space with them. Um, We were working on a play together, and I saw a lot of myself in their, like, style and their, like, way of, you know, talking about themselves. And I was just like, oh, huh, I wonder if I'm maybe a little um, on the, like, 
trans non-binary spectrum mm-hmm. and then I like you know started saying like they and she is fine you know this was in 2015 um and they're again like I've fluctuated between like being like I'm they them only or they she or she they like yeah or just she yeah um I've definitely gone back into the closet as cis and then come back out yeah um same thing with like my queerness like I've, I've never I've never once I came out as queer j- gay on yeah. that LGBT like you know vibe um well once I came out as bi which was what I came out as first um before I had uh sex with a girl um I like haven't gone back to being like I'm straight um yeah. because that's just I know that I'm not um <laughs> but I was um I came out as a lesbian when I was in college and then I started dating a boy again and I was just like, oh, huh, maybe I'm, I am bi. And then what I realized like very, very recently, like I'm talking like last summer, was that I have been like compulsory hetero for mm. my whole life. Sure. And that, no, I am capital G, like capital L, like <laughs> <laughs> I am the L word um, <laughs> and proud of that, like, you know, and, and just today I was talking with a person, um, you know, this girl, um, and writing up an email, like, uh, to pitch myself for something. And, uh, I use the term gender fluid, or I think I said I'm a non-binary lesbian. And she was just like, can you be non-binary and a lesbian? And I was Mm. like, well, I am. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, the, the sexuality thing I'm very, very secure in Mm. the gender thing. Today I'm very secure in it. Sure. Like maybe tomorrow I won't be, but mm-hmm. um, it's just an ever expanding thing. I'm sure, there will be like six new genders released next week. <laughs> it feels like you had this openness, and then you were forced to close it, and then now it feels like you're opening up again, and that's really beautiful to see. Yeah, I think like every day that I work towards my recovery and towards my spiritual, you know, awakenings, um, plural, and like towards that self-actualization and that self-love and recommit every day to self-love, um, you know, and I don't say that term lightly, like I, I don't like, you know, think that like, you know, self-love is the cure to all illness, <laughs> like, but I do, I do have to like love myself yeah. into loving other people. Whereas, like, I used to just be like, oh, other people need to love me so that I know how lovable I am. Mm -hmm. Um, But every day that I, like, wake up and recommit, I mean, to all that, um, I'm closer and closer to, like, that to thine own self self be true. Like, to knowing who the fuck I am, Mm -hmm. knowing who the fuck I want uh, to be, knowing who the fuck I want to be with. and it's it's just this beautiful thing. I, I really think it's like every every morning my first thought is like, oh god damn it, fuck like <laughs> shit. And then yeah, I'm able to like okay, yeah, grateful to be able to practice my spiritual principles and be humble and yeah. be honest and yeah. be unselfish and be helpful to other people and to love myself and to be forgiving and like 
spring into action and then mm-hmm. throughout the day I'm just like oh fuck again like and I can I constantly restart that that yep. process of like all right let's get back into the center of the love that we are <laughs> um yeah so mm-hmm. what would your biggest piece of advice to someone who's facing either a diagnosis of bipolar disorder or sobriety be hmm. trust your gut Okay. Simple. Yeah. Nice and easy. Nice and and also, like, keep it simple is another thing that I would say. Like, you know, people, neurodivergent people and people who uh, live with addiction uh, and alcoholism and and all of that fun, 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 fun (laughs) stuff, um, we're complicated thinkers. We overcomplicate, we overthink, we overdo, we overanalyze keep it simple yeah what are the facts what are the fucking facts spoiler alert it's probably not your feelings but (laughs) your feelings are highly valid it's just that they can't always be trusted if you have a squiggly brain Mm -hmm. you know um yeah yeah i i think about that a lot because i'll speak to people who aren't neurodivergent and they'll be like i just feel bad today i'm in a bad mood and it'll be that easy for them. And I'm like, I'm sitting here. I'm like, is this be- the beginning of an episode? Did something happen? Blah, blah, blah. Whereas most people are just like, ah, I'm tired. And I was like, ah, to live in such bliss. How do you do that? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And But also, you don't know if they're actually neurotypical or yeah, not. Like, you know, true. I feel yeah. like. I feel like it's actually very, you know, very uncommon yeah, for people I, to be neurotypical or not addicted to something. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you know. And it's also by uh, whose stick are we measuring what is There ne- you go. What's the barometer? Yeah. So, like, no one is because there isn't a, you know, there's no control group for sanity. <laughs> right. You know, right. How do you, how do you prove that? But And also, like, how boring. How boring <laughs> to be sane. Yeah. How boring to be sane. I, I think I think there's absolutely something to that. It is, it is like if you can get past a lot of the, the dark parts of it, it is a beautiful thing to have such a unique perspective on life. For real. You know, if you if you get to a point where you're feeling like you can, like you were saying, cruise on clean gas. You mm-hmm. Know? But yeah. 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 But this has been absolutely lovely speaking with you unless there's anything else you want to say right now i have everything i need for me. i think i have everything i need and more <laughs> it's written all over your face baby i can see your halo oh. you know you're my saving grace <laughs> well, i'd like to finish with a little beyonce you know yeah yeah live a little <laughs> thank you very much thank you for having me 